The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. This is Squawk Box. We are live from Davos and London, and I'm Jeff Cutmore. Yeah, we're still here. Uh, I'm Steve Sedgwick, and these are your headlines. Let's focus on the data. Disappointing retail sales and weaker-than-expected PPI, igniting U.S. recession fears, sending Wall Street into the red, and the 10-year yield to its lowest level since September. But Goldman Sachs' David Solomon uh, sees a positive outlook. I think the sentiment is softening a little bit. And the view that the chance of a softer landing, um, both in the US and Europe, is actually increasing. It's a high five from the Fed. Actually, is it a low five? Anyway, officials from Loretta Mesta to James Bullard say the policy rate should at least top 5% in another round of what apparently hawkish remarks. So we're going to get the view of the ECB policymaker, Klaus Knott, coming up live on Scorebox. Um, Credit Suisse focused on the business restructuring program. Reportedly, they will pay their top talent their bonuses up front as the company looks to retain key staff. The CEO, Ulrich Kerner, told CNBC the bank's overhaul is well underway. We are creating new Credit Suisse. We laid out a very clear plan. Um, We talked to all different stakeholders groups in the last three months, as you would expect. I think the plan, the strategy resonates very much. We are in full execution swing. Um, so I think we're making really, really good progress. And crypto lender Genesis will reportedly tip into bankruptcy within days, whilst US authorities have arrested the head of digital exchange Bitsalato uh, for allegedly handling, yep, hundreds of billions or millions of dollars in illegal funds. And I'm Juliana Tattlebaum. Also coming up on the program, Chinese President Xi Jinping expresses concern as the COVID wave hits rural areas. As some experts warn, the upcoming Lunar New Year holiday risks becoming a global super spreader event. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, bits like, that's bits, computer bits, I Lato. assume. And Lato as, as in latency, maybe? I don't know. I have no idea. Okay. Maybe all, the la- maybe all the Latin words had run out, so they had to think of something else. But, but obviously, it's not going well. There's another round of uh, big stories in the cryptocurrency yeah, space. Cryptocurrency's done quite well itself, though, hasn't it? Bitcoin yeah. and, and, the, and the like. Anyway, let's move on, because there's, there's plenty more to discuss. On today's show, we've got some big CEOs. I've already... Uh, uh, had a big hug with the CEO of Vestas. He's very friendly this morning. He's waiting in the wings as well. Enel, Novartis, Merck, Rio Tinto, S4 Capital, that's Martin Sol, the London Metals Exchange, BBVA. Do you want more? All right, let's do it. Uh, European Commissioner for Trade, Valdis Dombrovskis, and the president of the Dutch Central Bank, uh, Klaas Knot. So I guarantee you, ladies and gentlemen, you will know more about the thinking of the movers and shakers by the end of the show than you did at the start. You're going to hug every one of them as they yep. come into the uh, green room. If you get out of my way, I will. 
Let's uh, let's talk about the data. I'm COVID tested, you know. Good, I hope so. Um, unlike Jay Powell, apparently. But, oh yes, bless uh, yeah, him. I hope he gets him. well soon. Indeed. Um, U.S. wholesale prices fell much faster than expected in December, providing another sign that inflation is beginning to ease. The producer price index declining 0.5% for the month. That's the biggest slide since April 2020. For the year, headline PPI rose 6.2%, the lowest annual level since March 2021 and down considerably from the uh, 10% level that we saw back in 2021. Uh, Retail sales came in weak, falling by the most in a year, down 1.1% on the month in December, while the November figure was also revised down. Department stores reported a 6.6% decline, while online sales also slowed. The Fed's latest page book report showed expectations for inflation to moderate in the year ahead, but also that US economic activity remained relatively flat at the start of the year, with half of the Fed's regional banks reporting no change or slowing economic activity in their districts. So the market's trying to get the Fed to blink. And you know what? My headline said more hawkish language. Do you know what? It's the same language. Market, get over it. They haven't changed what they've said for months. And yet, Fed policymakers reiterating calls for higher rates uh, in uh, the longer term in order to uh, tame inflation. Now, it was reiteration as far as I can see. Why don't you make your own mind up? Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester says the central bank needs to go beyond uh, 5 to 5.25% and stay there. The St. Louis Fed's James Bullard says the rate needs to top 5% as soon as possible. He says he sees it going as high as 5.5% by the end of the year. Meanwhile, Patrick Harker and Laurie Logan both called for smaller moves. So we're seeing similar kind of language constantly from the Fed. But the market is continually pushing, hoping that the data is going to mean right, that they can take the foot off the pedal in terms of the rhetoric, let alone the actual rate hikes. Speaking to CNBC here in Davos, the Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon remained positive even after the bank posted its biggest earnings miss in history earlier this week. I think the sentiment is softening a little bit and the view that the chance of a softer landing, um, both in the US and Europe, is actually increasing. Our economists, you know, our economics team has been pretty soft landing over the last six months. I was more in a position because I was talking to CEOs who have been more cautious that I was more uncertain. But I see CEOs softening a little bit. And, you know, our economics team, even last weekend, went and said that they now are not calling for recession in Europe. The improvement in the energy situation, mm-hmm. the reopening in China, you know, they actually see as a little bit more positive. And our U.S. colleagues here in Davos will be speaking to the J.P. Morgan CEO, Jamie Dimon, later today. Do not miss that interview. That's at 12.10 Central European time. They're also going to be joined by the Morgan Stanley chairman and CEO, James Gorman. Uh, That interview coming up at 1400 Central European time. Juliana, good morning to you. Steve, good morning. Great to see you guys in Davos. Well, let's get the market check over here. Keep track of what's going on uh, back in London and across Europe. Um, We are keeping an eye on U.S. trade, which was quite negative yesterday. We had all three of the major indices and sharply lower, more than 1% of gains for every single one. The Dow Jones losing more than 600 points. 
points. Now, what ultimately drove the move lower seems to be rising recession concerns, as you flagged in the headlines. We got some disappointing retail sales data, which is driving some concern around the strength of the U.S. economy. And at the same time, we saw a big reaction in Treasury yields, which we'll come to in just a minute. But first, looking at the banks, we saw also an outsized reaction in the uh, banking sector stateside. J.P. Morgan dropping 3%, Bank of America dropping 2.3%. Morgan Stanley, a little bit more resilient. Goldman Sachs, a little bit more resilient. But remember, Goldman obviously had a very difficult day the day previous after they delivered a disappointing set of earnings. So the banking sector pulled back in a significant way yesterday. And this comes as we saw a further rally in treasuries. So yields moved lower across the treasury curve. Uh, You've got the 10-year currently trading around 3.3% out toward the front end. You've got the two-year trading around 4.05%. All of this as the um, investment community thinks about whether the U.S. um, Federal Reserve is going to be able to raise rates as aggressively if the economy is beginning to turn. Will they be able to engineer that soft landing? Yesterday, investors seemed to doubt it. Turning to Asian markets, the latest trade, here's the signal. We've got a mixed picture. Uh, we've got the Shanghai Composite up uh, two-tenths of a percent. Hang Sang trading uh, lower by about 10 basis points or so. Interesting reversal taking place in Japan. Now, the Nikkei 225 pulling back about 1.5%. We've also seen some strength return to the yen. So even though the Bank of Japan held steady, did not deliver that change to yield curve control that many had been expecting, it seems as though some speculators are doubting that commitment. So interesting to see that reversal. Finally, U.S. futures. Here's a look at how Wall Street's poised to open. Looks as though the losses will continue. All three of the majors are pointing to a weaker start. Guys, back over to you. Terrific, Juliana. Thank you very much indeed for that. Well, 2022 was a difficult year for the wind turbine industry across Europe. Production costs surged by 40% due to rising inflation and energy costs, according to the industry group Wind Europe. Some manufacturers have absorbed the higher costs, while others like Vestas have started to lift prices. Let's catch up now with uh, Henrik Andersen, the CEO of Vestas. Henrik, nice to see you this morning. Nice um, so what is the outlook like for 2023? Because we know on a lot of the profitability metrics, it was tough in 2022. Yeah, no, 22 is, is not the year to remember for, for that many positive things. And I think as a, as a world society, I think we felt that there were many things when we entered 22, we thought, okay, we're probably coming out of COVID, we're coming out of, of some of the bottlenecks, but it actually turned uh, completely opposite. So I think here, 22 is, is not a year to forget, it's a year to learn from. Uh, I think on a supply chain side, you have to be more robust and you probably also have to build more from a regional, a regional uh, point of view. Yeah, so there's, I mean, there's a few learnings. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't just Vestas, of course. You look, look across the industry in Europe and everybody had problems. And yet we keep being told that the transition is alive and your companies and your company is part of that solution. Why does the reality of the business seem to jar so much with the expectation? Yeah, no, I, I've been in, in divorce a few times and, and I think the first time was for me in, in when we look back in 20. It was a little bit of, of the feeling of actually if you put the ruler to the to the cost curve, you can actually predict almost in the end of this decade, electricity and energy will be almost for free. It didn't happen that way. And I think when you then reach a bump on the road uh, from a renewable, sustainable, clean energy, hey, come on, everyone not questioning, it's the right thing to do from a cost point of view is still the cheapest alternative to do but it has to be that transition happens quarterly 
annually, not just every second year when there is a, an election somewhere. Just uh, on a political question, do you get um, disheartened when you see the Germans opening up a, an open cast coal mine and yet promising to have vast amounts of wind over the medium to longer term? I think I would probably have preferred to help the Germans uh, within the uh, six to 12 months to put some turbines up instead. Uh, because I think if you start doing that, you also know that the decommissioning of some of those coal mines and others takes years in the other end. So, so I think we could have done uh, alternatives if people have asked for alternatives. Uh, but there is a problem, and you and I have discussed this off air already, and that is that Europe is moving at a snail's pace when, dare I say, other jurisdictions around the world, including the United States with the IRA as well, are moving at light speed as well. Why is it that time after time, he and I come up this mountain and we speak to CEOs like yourself in all kinds of industries, year after year, and we see the, the frustration from men and women like you who are just fed up with being able to move at a snail's pace in Europe when other jurisdictions are moving very, very quickly? Yeah, no, and as I said, we are a global company. And, and I think we, we, can, we can bring the best of the, of the practices. Have I simplified that rightly, though? <laughs> I think you're right. If you if you sort of look at it, uh, I think we, we, we spend a fair bit of time being caught, at least in EU right now, being caught a little bit in the vacuum of if we have done more of what we planned to do from a target setting, we would have been in a less difficult and challenged position throughout 22 in the, in the energy supply. So therefore, now it is the time to actually change pace. And if you look at the IRA in the, in the US, it is remarkable that yes, it took some discussions, but in reality, it went ahead with an IRA. And now we're working out how we're then working with how the IRA actually but works. It doesn't work on that level. Just one more for me on this one. Yeah. So, permitting. If there's one thing you could get from <laughs> the Europeans, it's just let's get quicker permitting as well. We seem to take so long to make a decision to do anything. I, I think we have to be, we have to appreciate. We, we worked for a couple of decades to build up uh, both a red tape, some will call it a bureaucratic uh, process. And I think in most countries right now, when you want to potentially wind some of that back, come on, people have gotten jobs and, and, and built uh, pretty powerful positions out of that. They're not going to give the red tape away uh, easily. So I think there's, there's, there's a little bit of, of that. And I will also bring up the other thing. In a lot of countries, you have actually delegated or decentralized the permitting process to a municipality. Come on. If you're a mayor and you're up for a re-election in, in two or three years' time and you have no incentive to take a beneficial country national decision of permitting, what's actually the upside? So, so one of our repeatedly again and again, let's sit down and also work in the current electricity and energy prices around the world. There's plenty of room to award the local uh, municipality uh, an incentive to let, permit. Let, let, me, let me just um, um, cut to the chase very quickly. You, you, you signed a, a big deal with Australia, with an Australian company, yeah. 122 turbines to go to Australia. There are obviously opportunities in, in the United States as well. Um, to what extent do you think that your focus is going to increasingly be outside of Europe, given the challenges that you've stated? 
is Europe going to fall behind? Sum it up for us. No, I, I, I don't think so. I, I think the world will be moving. And I think also here when we look at, I, come on, I, I'm, I've seen energy ministers and I've seen prime ministers and other stuff from many of the EU uh, countries. Listen, every, everyone is fully aware. Now it's, 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 it's getting back to the drawing board and get it done. But if you look at it, uh, Brazil took uh, very, very... Uh, renewable measures uh, already five years ago. We built manufacturing localization in, in Brazil to fulfill that capacity. Uh, US is doing the same uh, now and has been doing it. Actually, since 1992, when the production tax credit was introduced. So I think it's it's just getting into the rhythm. And I think right now we, we, we just have to figure that one in, out in Europe. So I haven't written off uh, my European belief uh, and I will keep pushing for it because Europe deserves the electricity and the clean power. Henrik, always a pleasure catching up with you. Thanks so much for, for being with us and we'll see you on the numbers. Uh, Henrik Anderson, the CEO of Vestas. Um, still to come on the programme, don't miss Hadley's panel later today on how global leaders should balance short and long-term priorities in the quest to deal with the energy transition that's coming up at 1400 CET. Absolutely. And Chinese President Xi Jinping says he's worried about the spread of COVID in rural areas but sees light ahead billions preparing to travel across China for the lunar new year with officials forecasting trips could reach about two-thirds of their pre pandemic levels. Xi's comments are the most direct acknowledgement of China's worsening COVID crisis since reversing the zero COVID policy last month. Well, let's carry on with the thematic of how Europe is coping with an energy crisis uh, with uh, Francesco Serrati, who's the CEO of Enel. That is first on CNBC interview coming up next. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Saudi Aramco CEO Amin Nasser has urged policymakers to support investment in oil, saying fossil fuels will be required in the long term, even as countries begin their energy transitions. Interesting comments. Now, speaking exclusively to CNBC, uh, he told us he was unsure of uncertainties that uh, could arise in the wake of the ongoing Russia-Ukraine war. Well, you know... uh With regard to gas, you know, because gas is more of an issue than oil because uh, oil is a commodity. You can take it from uh, Europe and place it in Asia and Russian crude will always find markets with the right price. However, gas is more of an issue because uh, gas is not enough spare capacity available. Second, you need LNG terminals and you need to establish markets and there's not enough supply to meet the demand. So it's a much bigger issue. Uh, for crude oil, we are in a situation where there is a spare capacity that's helping to mitigate any interruptions. However, I am not so sure about the mid to long term 
because as this spare capacity erodes, you would not be having the capability to mitigate any uh, short or long-term interruptions that what happens with the Russia-Ukraine crisis. How much flexibility do you as a Ramco have? Because you're 10% of the world's oil, essentially. Well, we our maximum sustained capacity is 12 million. We're building additional capacity uh, to 13 million by 2027. We are at the same time building our uh, gas, increasing our gas to replace our liquid burning. So that will avail additional barrels, almost close to a million barrels uh, over by 2030 in terms by eliminating the liquid burning in the kingdom. So we will have ample uh, capacity. The issue is that demand growth and the decline that we're seeing in the market, we are looking at a decline of four to six percent in a hundred million barrel system. Four to six percent is about four million to six million additional barrels that needs to come to the market every year. So, yes, we are bringing additional capacity, but uh, I don't think uh, there is enough investment to bring additional capacity that will be needed uh, to supply the market. Well, I'm delighted to uh, welcome back to CNBC Francesco Storacci, who's the CEO of Enel. Uh, Francesco, we just had a great conversation with the CEO of Vestas about... Yeah, yes. Uh, yes, exactly. About the um, the situation in terms of green energy transition. But look, you uh, have been arguably one of the biggest voices in energy transition for our electricity sources for the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just wonder where we're at now, because, of course, it's been an existential shock for many people in terms of the higher energy prices and the energy crisis and our lack of storage or actually having enough storage for this winter as well. I just wondered if you give us a round robin of where we're at now in terms of our energy supplies. I think in Europe, we can say that the worst is over. There was a fear that this winter would not be an easy one. Uh, We've been partly lucky because in parts of Europe, it's been warm. Uh, But we've also seen how much waste we had in our system in terms of use of gas. And that showed up in in this month. So I think we can say that this winter we'll get through. We'll go through this winter. And we can also add the numbers that uh, were disclosed on on the installation of 2022 on renewable energy. We we reached a a 55,000 megawatt mark of renewable energy installation in the year, which is a record for Europe, which is also something that has nothing to do with the war. You know, an installation in 22 means something decided in 19 or 20. So you can imagine what happens in 23 and 24 after this shock. So clearly the potential of substituting further gas for generating electricity is showing in a big way. So despite the fact that some nations, and I don't need to go back on this story again, but some nations have decided to reopen some pretty dirty fossil fuel usage as well to get through the winter as well. Despite that, has the war been a catalyst for more or less renewable energy at scale and at speed? It's been a catalyst for more at scale and it's showing up in a big way, I think, in the retail end, which is the fastest moving one. We saw numbers of installations for small rooftops trebling through the 22 year and every month beats the preceding month. So it's still accelerating. Just to give you a number, in Italy, just Italy is just one of the many countries here, we will put down about 2,200 megawatts of small installation, 160,000 small plants. When last, the year before, there were 50,000, it was about 800 megawatts. So it's three times and it's growing. 
So I think the, the response will be quite dramatic and it will show up in 23 and 24. You will, you will see that coming. We see it clearly on the way. So how would you say you feel about the consistency of Europe's energy policy at this stage? Because um, we know 2022 was a very difficult year and lots of different yeah. governments had different ideas and different plans. I think that it is unfair to criticize some of the reactions in hindsight. I mean, let's face it, this was a real shock for everybody. Okay, this war was, this war was unwarranted and completely unrealistically from all points of view, from a logical point of view, from a military point of view, from an economical point of view. It was totally wrong. It still is, by the way. So government had to react on very short time and had basically very little reflection uh, space. But looking at it now, we're saying most of the problems were, I think, managed at the end quite effectively. It was expensive because the gas was really creating havoc and we spent a lot of money uh, around that. But eventually a cap was put in or a cap, a mechanism rather than a cap. Let's put it this way. It's more a mechanism than a cap itself, but it's something. And I think we all realize that we can go through this. And I think if you look at the consistency with the previous policy that existed, let's remember the, the union had decided to decarbonize its economy. This is now an acceleration in that direction rather than anything else. And if you to survive, you have to put a little coal uh, for a couple of years. That's not really the point. Let's just talk about the business very briefly before we let you go. Um, S&P cut the outlook at the end of last year. You're in a process of um, yep. trying to sell off assets at this point. Um, how complicated does that S&P move make that process? Um, how are you doing in that process? And how will the business do this year? I think the, uh, the S&P uh, cut was expected. Let's say that during the 22, the combined uh, measures of the Spanish and Italian government added about 8 billions of working capital to our debt, which will eventually get back to normal. So that is, I think, the right thing to do for, from an S&P standpoint. Uh, the, the sales that are ongoing are processes that started in 20 and 21. So it's just the end of, of something that we had in mind to carry out anyway. Maybe the only new thing, if you want, in all this is the fact that gas, before the war, we had a strategic plan that said we will stop using gas for generating electricity in 2030 and we will stop supplying gas to customers in 2040. This is now accelerating that end. So we will shorten that time drastically and we announced it last time. We're going to sell out our gas portfolios, customers and, and supply contracts faster and, and with more profits than we expected. Uh, so that's the only change. Um, we have to leave it there, the nature of it. But in terms of European policy, well, let's see what Valdis Dombrovskis has to say because we're going to speak to him in a few moments' time. But uh, we have to leave it now, Francesco, because I know he's waiting in the wings. Uh, always a pleasure, sir. Good to see you, and we'll see you hopefully on the numbers as well. Francesco Storacci, who is Thank the CEO you. of Enel. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.